Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bible study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Longman. Um, we are recording this for podcasts, so just know that you're on the air. Um, so we're, we're, this will be, I promise, the last edition of our Bible study on Revelation. It has only taken... When did we start this? Like in February of last year? So this is the end of the end? This is the end of the end. That's it. Yeah. Um, in fact, at approximately 10.30, I expect Jesus to come back. <laughs> or, or something. Um, we will churn through some stuff. Um, you should have a sheet that's got the number 26 up in the top corner. We'll get into that stuff. Um, we don't have a lot more questions on it, but there is another lesson after that um, that I'm just going to quick walk us through. Just It's some kind of recap and, and reflections on the book of Revelation. So we'll do that. As you know, next week we will start um, the Red Letter Challenge. Um, and so you have an opportunity today to grab a book. They're out in the narthex. And just so you know, there's a reading schedule slipped inside of each book. Um, there are some on the table too, but, but if you grab a book, you've got a reading schedule, okay? Um, and so grab yourself a book, sign up for a small group. Um, there are several of them on the board. You can kind of pick a place or a time or a group that you want to be part of, however you want to do that. We will do the same material in here, but I encourage you to be part of a small group as well. Um, because that will give you opportunities to have discussion and conversation, to build relationships around your experiences with Red Letter Challenge. And then, once we've all been through this together, um, the small groups get to kind of pick their path and decide what, you know, how they want to do it, how often they want to meet, where they want to meet, all that kind of stuff. But this gets us into small groups. Um, so sign up for a small group, grab a copy of the book, Next week, Sunday, will be the introductory stuff. So we'll talk about what's coming. And then the reading schedule starts a week from this Wednesday. So you won't have to start reading until Wednesday. And it's about, you know, three, four or five pages a day that you'll be reading, some of which is journaling kind of stuff if you want to keep notes on how it's gone for you. Um, so we'll get all into that next week. Um, as usual, let's start with Q&A. Are there any questions that anybody has for me about anything? What was it? Um, the small catechism talks quite a bit about confession. Yes. But it seems like uh, it's become less and less part of the law. You're exactly right. Is it because it's too <laughs> so, I, I, that's, so the question was, you know, the small catechism actually talks quite a lot about confession and absolution and with, with the assumption that there will be both corporate confession and absolution as part of worship but also that there would be private confession and absolution where you come to the pastor and speak with him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and, and Linda pointed out, rightly, that that's less common today than it used to be. Why? Um, and one point is that, yeah, I think there was a period of time where people kind of viewed that as too Catholic and therefore they weren't interested in it. Um, it's a huge blessing and it's an invitation that I make to all of you. That if you have sins that are troubling you or that are, that are you know, kind of um, burdening your conscience, you have an opportunity to come talk to me privately um, and, and confess that sin and to hear absolution. Um, and that is always private. I'm, I am bound by an oath that I will never reveal the sins that have been revealed to me. Um, so that's completely private. But it is immensely powerful. 
to come sit down across from me and confess your sins and have me look you in the eye and say, Leroy, um, as a called and ordained servant of Christ, I announce the grace of God to you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To have that direct eye contact, one-on-one, very personal um, absolution announced to you is hugely powerful. So it's certainly something we still do today, and yet a lot of people don't avail themselves of it. Um, so that's, I'm glad you said that, because it lets me make the invitation again. I'm always available for that, um, anytime. If you want to come talk to me, give me a call, and we will schedule a time. It is completely private, I guarantee you. Yeah. Uh, throughout the uh, New Testament, yes, I read Jesus always referred himself as the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. Um, could you give us an idea why he used that? It's a lot of times he uses it. does, it, yeah. But is it because he wanted to make that connection with us? Or does he want to, um, to uh, tell us something else? He's actually, he's actually channeling some stuff from the Old Testament. So what he's doing is he's plucking a phrase that's, that's used pretty heavily in Daniel and applying it to himself. And what he's doing is, is in, a, in a, I want to say covert way, but, but in a subtle way, he's affirming that he is the Messiah. Okay? So in Daniel, Daniel has this prophecy about the coming Messiah, and he's referred to in Daniel as the Son of Man. And so when Jesus shows up and he starts calling himself the son of man, it's kind of like him going, yeah, the guy Daniel was talking about. You know, so he's sort of pointing back and saying, this is who I am. Um, and he does it again. You know, there's that the story about when he goes to Nazareth and to preach to the synagogue and they and they unroll the scroll and they hand it to him. And it's this passage from Isaiah that says that he's come to to, you know, unburden the poor and whatever and bring forgiveness to those and he says, he finishes reading and he rolls it up and he goes, this passage is being fulfilled in your hearing. And like everybody freaked out because he was being blasphemous because he was clearly claiming to be the Messiah. He is. You know, but that was when they wanted to take him out to the brow of the, the hill and they wanted to throw him off Mount Precipice. And, and he just sort of disappears through the crowd. But, but he does that a lot. And, and there's those little nods back to Old Testament stuff to say, yeah, I'm that guy, you know? And so for those who kind of understand it and who are steeped in Old Testament stuff, which is all they had at that point, you know, for those who really were in the scripture, when he calls himself the son of man, he's making a huge claim. He knew the scriptures too. Totally. Well, he wrote them, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? Yeah, okay. He was man. He is man. Well, and it's... is flesh and blood like you and me? Yes, and. Yeah, both and, right? Right. So 100% man, 100% God. Right. So, so it's, a, it's a fitting title as well to say he's the son of man. And, and one of the things that I think is cool about that is as Daniel wrote that prophecy, I'm, it probably made very little sense. You know, why? What the son of man, what does it mean and how does that tie together? And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, and, and we can look at it and it's like everything clicks into place all of a sudden. You're like, oh, <laughs> oh, I get it now. I see what he's talking about. So, you know, to that phrase, the son of man or son of a man, if you want to look at it that way, is, is, a, is a nod to the incarnation as well. That doesn't make sense until the incarnation happens. 
And then all of a sudden, all the pieces fit together. Because he died as a man. According to his human nature is the phrase we use. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. What else? You got all the hard questions today. Yeah, Lynn. Jesus was asked, tell us plainly. I did tell you. <laughs> How much more yeah. can I say? Right. I told you. Right. But you won't believe. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, and this is just an example of he's claiming to be the yeah. Christ, the Messiah. Yep. yep, he's not really pulling any punches about it. Yeah. And he had to be the Christ to be able to walk through the crowd without being noticed. Oh, yeah. To me, it's yeah. like, that would be like the president or something. You want to leave the stage and walk yeah. through. Like, how did he yeah. do that? How did you do that? <laughs> cool. Any other questions? What, John? What is it? John's punchy this morning. He was really cute in early service. Um, okay, uh, let's begin then with a so red letter challenge. I talked about getting your books. Um, today's commitment Sunday. Um, so just to prep you, if you haven't already been to church, when you grab a bulletin, one be careful because there are actually two little cards slipped in each of the bulletins. There, they look just like that. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, there's two in there for a reason. One is for you to fill out to put in the box, and one is for you to fill out and take home. Um, so. Those are in the bulletin. If you happen not to get a bulletin or whatever, there's probably a bunch of them on the floor in the narthex, or an usher will bring you one. <laughs> Just saying. Each, each person gets a book, not one it, it, is, it is a family pledge. No, no, no. No, Oh, a book? Our, our request right now is each family. Just to keep a, a, a hold on the numbers. I don't know what it's going to look like. And if there are children, there's another book. There is a kids' book for kids up through middle school, and they'll be using that in the middle school classes down here. Thank you. Yeah. So there's red letter kids. There's red letter challenge for adults. All right. Um, I think that's it for announcement kind of stuff. Let's start with a devotion. That only took 15 minutes. Um, what is today? September 18th. The passage is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the title of this is Keep Your Eyes on Christ. The righteousness Paul is speaking about here is external, and it comes from Christ living in us. It's not internal. It doesn't come from ourselves. So if we're concerned about Christian righteousness, we must completely set aside the self. If I focus on myself, then I become concerned about works, and become subject to the law, whether I intend to or not. Instead, Christ and my conscience must become one so that I see nothing else except the crucified and risen Christ. If I ignore Christ and only look at myself, then I'm ruined. Soon I begin thinking, Christ is in heaven. I'm on earth. How can I come to him? I'll try to live a holy life and do what the law requires so that I can find eternal life. If I consider myself my condition, what I should be doing, then I will always lose sight of Christ. He alone is my righteousness and my life. If I lose him, no one else will be able to help me, and despair and condemnation will certainly follow. Unfortunately, this happens all the time. When facing temptation or death, it is natural for us to ignore Christ and to look at our own lives. If we aren't strengthened through faith during those times, we'll perish. So during these struggles of conscience, we must learn to let go of ourselves. We must forget about the law and works. 
They only drive us to look at ourselves. Instead, we must turn our eyes directly towards the bronze snake, Christ, the one nailed to the cross. We must fix our gaze upon him. So um, we pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have turned our hearts and pointed us toward him to know that he is the one who brings us salvation. We ask that you would help us to not look at self, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ because he is our saving faith. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word and to learn from it and be formed by it. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us, to open our hearts and our minds as we open up uh, the book of Revelation to learn from it. Um, Be with us, we pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 22, the final chapter of Revelation. I'm going to go ahead and read it so that we've got that context as we answer the last few questions here. Um, I'll be reading uh, from Christian Standard Bible just just to hear that translation. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen.
Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Here ends the reading. Um, any thoughts, comments, observations, questions? Yeah. Right. That's a heck of a warning at the end, isn't it? Uh, really, seriously. You know, picking and choosing, adding, subtracting, bad idea. Um, and it, it's a pretty blunt. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the people who are picking and choosing aren't reading that one. So, <laughs> yeah, just. So tying into that, that thought process, why is it that we have so many different versions of the Bible that say the same thing in completely different words? So you mean the different translations? Yeah, because yeah. they can be thought of or misconstrued in many different ways. Yeah, there's a there's a great yeah, saying. The there's a great saying that that all translators are traitors. <laughs> and and the reason is that I mean translation is an art. It, there is no there's no one-to-one correspondence between languages, right? So to take the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek that's in the Bible and render it in English is a, is a challenging task um, because you're always making decisions about, you know, there are always nuances in language and you're always making decisions about which nuance of, of a word or of a phrase you should bring out and what's important. And, and that, that saying that all translators are traitors, what it means is it is impossible to do a translation and not bring your theology into it, okay? So, so whatever your theological mindset is, it will color the way you interpret and translate the words of the Bible, okay? So what you find, there's a couple of things going on, and a great example of the real challenge of this is a translation called The Message. You've probably heard of it. Um, it's sort of modern English, flows and reads very much like we speak. So it's very accessible in that way. The challenge is that it was written by, it was translated by one guy. His name's Eugene Peterson. He was a Presbyterian priest or pastor. Um, and, and he did a good job, but he had a purpose in mind when he did that. And that was, um, he was translating for his Bible study classes. You know, he wanted to be able to give them something to kind of have a sense of sort of the colloquial version of the language that he was translating. But it's, but it's his opinion only. That's all that went into it. So something like um, the, the mainstream translations, um, ESV, English Standard Version, um, Christian Standard Bible that I've been reading some from here, um, NIV that we have heard in the past that was pretty big for a while. Um, they benefit from the fact that they actually have translation committees, oftentimes representing a lot of different theological views. And so they get to they get to have those fistfights <laughs> over the phrases to try and render it in as, as um, objective a way as they can. But there are translations that, that hew to one or, or another different theological viewpoints. And while they don't generally change the overall meaning, they kind of do have subtle adjustments made to them. Um, and you see that in other translations as well. I think the Mormons have their own translation of things. It, 
that's just it's a hack job by the way it's just terrible greek um, but but what they've done is they've taken the Greek and they've they've misunderstood like the fundamental rules of Greek to come up with something that fits their approach to it. So what I would say is <laughs> one of the questions that you often hear is what's the best translation, mm -hmm. right? And the answer is well, <laughs> the answer from 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 obnoxious guys at the seminary is translations are for sissies, but. <laughs> But the reality is that I think the best translations are the ones that are done by large groups of people who kind of keep it on the straight and narrow. Um, so, you know, I'm cautious of anything that says it's an amplified version or something like that, where they're like pulling out meaning of things. Because um, there are things in the Bible that honestly are kind of opaque. I mean, they're hard for us to render and make sense of. Um, and, and yet... They are what they are. And so we just got to kind of let them be there and understand that in the context of Scripture as a whole. Um, but, you know, that's two, well, not the previous hymnal that we used in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the blue one. I think it was blue, wasn't it? Yeah. It was put together really quickly. Okay. And, and that was the one where they picked NIV as the translation that they used. Um, NIV is pretty good. It reads mm. well. Mm. It, it's really good for reading. But there are some things that it doesn't handle very well. Um, and so when they came out with the Lutheran service book, the one that we currently use, they actually stepped back and were very thoughtful and cautious about what translation they picked. Um, and they settled on ESV. Although it's not as readable, it's not quite as smooth, it does do a better job across the board of kind of rendering things in an objective way. Um, Christian Standard Bible, I have found to be pretty reliable. I like it. Um, and there was a Lutheran on the team. <laughs> so I like knowing that too. So, you know, mainstream ones, they're pretty darn good. Translations that we have are pretty good these days. But there are some to watch out for, for sure. Yeah, Lynn. It's significant to note that you want a translation, not a paraphrase. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. boy. And right. back in... The 80s, 70s, the book Yeah, was that the Good News one? The Good News. Bible. Oh, the Living Bible, yeah. The Message. The, the Living Bible. Bible. But it read well. Sure. Yeah. But it could, it could wander off the path pretty I significantly. I they intentionally meant for just bringing people to Christ, like yeah, taking there was one... Jesus to people where they are. Yeah. So that you couldn't, if you, you couldn't be intimidated by right. the other transitions. That was the purpose of right. them. It was to make them accessible, but, but in the process they sort of... Yeah, got yeah. lost. Did that, that was a whole lot of words. <laughs> Did that hit what you were looking for, though? I believe so, yeah. Okay, all right, good. Yeah, Roger. Um, I understand that there's all these different versions and everything, um, but when, when you're reading the Bible alone... Um, a lot of times it gets a little confusing. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and you know sometimes the way the the, the way it's written, you know, it, 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 yeah, the translation is good, but yeah, what um, what does that you, mean? You're anyway, trying to figure it out, and, right? And, and and since you're there by yourself, right. looking at the words, it, it's really difficult to kind of pull out what the meaning is of right. that particular phrase. Sure. What about? Study Bibles because yeah. the study Bibles now, now then you're you're dealing with somebody else's point of view of what the yeah. meaning of that phrase is. Here's a real good one. 
the Lutheran study Bible. <laughs> so this is ESV, but the notes are all Lutheran notes, okay? okay. Um, put together the, by... I had the NIV study Bible, and unfortunately a lot the old of Concordia what's one. in there is, you know, when yeah. it comes to the definitions or, or trying to explain what certain verses are, it, it, it really kind of conflicts with right. what we're with Yeah, with about. Lutheran theology, that's right. Yeah. This is a really good one. Um, you're right, because the old Concordia Study Bible is what that was called, had NIV. The notes were not exclusively Lutheran. They, they were sort of general, reformed, you know, th th there was some stuff that we looked at and went, no. Uh -huh. um, so that was wh where this one came from, actually, was, was a desire to have one that was really Lutheran theology in the, all the notes. So a bunch of seminary professors are involved in this, a bunch of, um, you know, senior folks at the LCMS. Um, this is an excellent one. Here's my take That's on the, study the reason, Bibles. The reason I asked is because I'd like to, I, I've read through the Bible once. Right. And I, I'd like to do it again, but I'd like to do it more in depth. Yep. Okay. Yep. And just to make sure that I'm, you know, not finding verses. Yeah, not that off in the weeds. Really not supposed <laughs> to be written that way. <laughs> yeah. Not off in the weeds. Yeah, well, and well, truly, well, yeah, I mean, that's, I you know, that's, that, but, uh, this is the iron well, sharpens iron to, thing. You know, make here. sure I'm reading the right thing here. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, and here's an interesting thing, and we're like way off the path, but that, I don't care. Um, to me, there, there's kind of two approaches to Bible reading, and I think both have value. Um, one of them is to just straight out read the text. Because one of the things that drives me bananas about this study Bible, you know, the top half is the Bible text, the bottom half is the notes, is that I'm constantly going, oh, 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 oh. And, and that's cool. However, what you lose is the narrative arc of the actual Bible text. And that's so, why I read it through the first Yeah, time. that's a great just, way to do it. just went from beginning to end right. all the way through Perfect. and just, uh, you know, as many pages as I could at a time. Yeah. And get the stories and the, yeah. and, and the way it was written, just yep. read it. And the power of the word. I mean, the word does stuff to you, even if you're not getting it. I didn't, wanna, I didn't want to take notes. I didn't right. want to right. Good. I just wanted to read it. Yep. So. Good. And there are readers' editions of the Bible that you can get. You can get an ESV that doesn't have any verse or chapter markings in it. So it actually does read, you know, it's much better for just sitting down and reading. Right. Um, but Lutheran Study Bible, if you're looking for one where you want to dig into stuff, this is an excellent resource. It's okay. really good. Right. Yeah. Yes, Robert. Okay. So in the beginning, um, from Exodus all the way to yep. the, the Old Testament, that yep. was very well documented in scrolls. Oh, yeah. Okay. As you start the New Testament to Revelation, yes. Jesus had like 12 disciples and then there's some other followers, right? Right. Mm -hmm. right? And there must have been more than three writers, four writers, uh, Paul and the three. Oh, yeah. So were, were, were some of these, <laughs> some of the stuff that they wrote, meaning the followers or, right. or um, disciples, was, was um, any of that left out? So... That's a really great question. Like, like the question is, where did this come from? Right? <laughs> you know? I heard it was put together by the... Don't, yeah. Don't listen to Dan Brown. Let's okay. just start with that. Right. <laughs> so, so this happened in about 400 AD, okay? Um, in Constantinople, I think it was. But, but they, a, a church 
Committee. Committee, basically, yeah. Came together to say, let's nail down what the canon is. So, you know, how does something wind up in here? I mean, did, did everybody just go, you know, well, we like that one. We like, kinda, in a way. I mean, essentially what happened was they sat down and they said, what are the books that every Christian church is looking at? What are the books that they're reading and that everybody agrees are inspired works? that are consistent across, you know, all of them, that, that everybody is going, yep, um, that, you know, all point to Jesus Christ. And, and those are the things that we looked at were the things that were universally used by the church at that time. So over time, you know, in the 400 or so years since Jesus had come around, the church as a whole had kind of pegged some things and said, this is inspired for sure. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, there were a bunch of other books. A bunch of Paul's letters were being circulated around. Everybody was reading them. Now, there are a handful of these um, books in the New Testament that were used very, very widely, but not everywhere. Um, and yet, as, as the, that committee looked at it, they said, this is widely used enough that we can include it in the canon. Now, the trick with those, and there's not a lot. Revelation is one of them, by the way. Um, the trick with those is there is no doctrine of the church that's based in any of that writing. Okay, so all of it supports the other stuff that was used universally, um, but we don't base any doctrine on anything specifically coming from one of those contested books. There were a handful of books that are, that were written or letters that were written in the intertestamental period, in that 400 years or so between when prophecy stopped in the Old Testament and Jesus arrived. Um, those are called the Apocrypha, and, and they're interesting and helpful sometimes. Um, they're often, you know, if you come from a Catholic background, you'll frequently find that in the middle of your Bible. Um, the um, Concordia Publishing House actually has a, an excellent study Bible version of the Apocrypha with notes and stuff that's kind of neat. Um, but essentially what, what that committee did was look at what are the books that are universally accepted by the church? And, and that became our canon. Um, and the ones that were not, you know, that, you know, there's just a handful of people over here that are reading it or a handful of folks over there. They said, well, that hasn't, hasn't, you know, the Holy Spirit has not made that something that is universally used. So, so our, our canon came from a process of looking at the things that Christians had accepted as inspired by God and, and you know, fulfilling a prophecy. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And so the trick yeah, is, you know, we... a lot of, a long time to, yeah. to actually settle on what books yeah. are in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What are the, what there are, are many writings today that are written today don't fit. Right. You know, right. and it's all man's opinion. You can write your own if you want. <laughs> you want to really go down a rabbit hole, look, <laughs> look, look at stuff about whether or not the canon is closed, which yeah. is the, the yeah. phrase for it. Is this all or is there something else? Is there anything um, else? And, and I, I will say that... The words of the Bible tells you. Well, Hebrews gives some assistance with that. But, um, the, I will say the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate does not hold a specific doctrinal position about that. Um, it's effectively, the way it comes down is, it might be open, but nothing's turned up in all this time, so we're pretty sure that's all of it. 
Um, and, and I say Hebrews helps because Hebrews actually starts off with, um, in the former times, God spoke to us through his prophets and, and through very many and various ways. But in these latter days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so everything that we have in the New Testament is very tightly bound around Jesus Christ time-wise. You know, I mean, the latest book in the New Testament is Revelation. That's about 90 A.D. So, so all of this stuff is tightly bound to Jesus. And therefore, you know, Revel or Hebrews kind of indicates, hey, this is the stuff. There's not going to be new revelation that's coming. This is it. So that's kind of how we view that. Okay. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yes, very Good. helpful. All right. He also read to remember that we're going back to those who knew Jesus. Yes. And the scriptures used those who walked with him or right. were in contact with him. So you have Mark. Where does Mark come from? Yeah. From Peter. Yeah. And so these are those who have touched Jesus. Yeah. And they're touching us with that same life. Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah. And it's kind of first person account, you could yeah. almost call it. Luke is... You know, Luke is, he's, he's, he did a study. <laughs> Luke went out and he talked to a lot of people who had been with Jesus and then he pulled all that together to give us a gospel and acts. So, yeah, I mean, this is what you're reading are essentially first person accounts of what happened. So we're not, you know, we're not reading stuff that people wrote who were generations removed from it, who are making stuff up out of thin air. We're reading stuff from people who actually experienced Jesus in person. And that's, that's powerful. Yeah. Did the disciples actually write it? Did they actually print it or put it well, down? I mean, these things get get captured onto onto codexes and scrolls. Codex is basically just folios, you know, pages. Verbal. A lot of it was passed down verbally, and then eventually was written down. Yeah. Um, so you know, here's here's the thing. This I didn't know we were heading down this path, but um, King James version. Okay, everybody's like, oh, that's, that, that's the Bible Jesus used. King James, don't underestimate for a second the importance of the King James translation. Okay, it's a big deal. Um, but, you know, King James came out in, what was the year? 1611, I think it was, something like that. At the time, when they did the King James translation... We had about six good manuscripts that they were working from. Something like that. Six or ten, something like that. That was all we had. And so that was what they worked from. Well, today, that number of manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts that we have is like 50,000. So what has happened over time is we have collected more and more manuscript evidence much of it much older than what we had in the 1600s. And, and that has helped to clarify our understanding of and, and get closer to what the original text was. So there are some things in, in King James that are just, I mean, not to put it any other way, they're just wrong. But they're wrong only because of the evidence that they had to work with and what we now know. And a perfect example of that is actually in the Lord's Prayer. Um, because in the, in the King James, and of course that's what we preserved forever, that's what we use, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? Not in the Bible. Well, it is, it is in the Bible, but there's more words. <laughs> because, because now we know that the original text 
was more like, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, that's, I mean, it's not like hugely different, but it does kind of change your understanding of what's going on. It's not like God is protecting us from just generic evil or something. You know, he's actually protecting us from Satan. And and that's that prayer. So King James, the effect of King James on the English language, on popular understanding of, of scripture, on culture, can be underestimated, but but know that we have so much more information now to, to produce really good translations that it's it's kind of ridiculous to pit you know ESV against King James or something like that because it's just they they come from a different well of information. But but the other thing is all of them guess what. Um, point exactly the same way to Jesus. It's not like, you know, one that we had less evidence and it says that you're saved by eating lemons and the other one says you're saved by, you know, having faith in Jesus or something. You know, so so the astonishing thing about the Bible is the consistency of these fragments that have been handed down and have been preserved throughout history that that is unparalleled in the literature of the world. I mean, there's nothing that comes close to what we have of the Bible. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. Um, Our oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament dated back to about 1100 AD, give or take. Um, That was the oldest stuff because um, rabbis were like really intentional about when when um, when a Torah became worn, they got rid of it. They would burn it or bury it. So they, they didn't preserve old stuff, but they did have a very specific mechanism for how they went through the process of copying. They counted letters. They had certain letters that were made bigger so that you would count them from the end and from the beginning, and you'd better land on that center character. And if you didn't, you'd throw the whole thing away. I mean, they had phenomenal mechanisms for replicating things accurately. And so the late, the earliest ones we had were about 1100 AD. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls turned up. They're probably a thousand years earlier. And, and so we're like, ooh, that'll be interesting. Let's whip out Isaiah and see what that looks like. And you pull out Isaiah and you lay them side by side and doggone it if they're not identical. You know, so all of a sudden you have this phenomenal evidence that what we have from 1100 AD is super duper reliable. <laughs> And, and there is nothing else in all literature that comes close to the preservation that has happened of, you know, God's word. Um, how in the world did that happen? It's God's word. He made it happen. He ensured that it would get preserved. Because here's God's revelation to us that points us to his son, Jesus Christ, and that's where salvation is. I'm pulling us back to our study. What, wait, oh, Revelation. Yeah. We've, got, um, yeah, we've got 17 minutes now to cover it. <laughs> I think you're going to have to meet another week. I've got, I've got the King James. Okay, good. Um, 19. Um, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. In your sense, the tree of life. Yeah. What's the difference? What is the difference? I, now I've got to go look at the Greek and tell you what it's saying. So, oh, the book of prophecy. There you go. So 19 it is? Gulon, Xulon is the word. 
Um, <laughs> this is awesome. Okay, so the word is is xulon, which which means wood. Wood. Yeah, wood. Um, so you know, you can go in a couple of different directions with that. Um, wood is you know the stuff that makes paper, right? Wood is the stuff that trees are made of. Um, you know, so what does this mean? Um, mostly, it's it's a reference to wood as a plant substance in unmanufactured form. But you can see how you might go toward tree as your translation. You might go toward book because a book is made up of pages of wood product. Um, so, so that's what, yeah, but that's one of those cases where the translator's got to figure out how to render this thing. Because is it going to be helpful to you to say, God will take away your part in the wood of life? And everybody goes, what? <laughs> right? So we got to figure out, okay, what does he mean when he says wood? What is that? What's it referring to? Book of life, there's some imagery prior to that. That makes sense. Tree of life, there's some imagery prior to that. That makes sense too. So either one of those. And, and again, it doesn't fundamentally change the meaning of it, especially in a case like this where there's, it's a... It's kind of a metaphor in play. Mm -hmm. There isn't an actual. There's not. Yeah. Right. Right. So, that's helpful. Let me. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Go ahead, Ken. What was that? Go ahead. Oh, I, I never believed that in heaven there is a book of life. The book of with life. your with your name in it. Yeah. And Moses' uh, name is in the book of life, so it must have had trees in heaven. Or there you go. Yeah. Well, we read about one at the beginning. Of <laughs> what is that book? <laughs> All right, so let me go. I'm going to go back to number 10 because that's actually our next question. What happens to those who hear the Spirit and the Bride's invitation in Revelation 22 17? So you get this long passage here, well, a short passage, Jesus saying that he's coming. He's the bright morning star, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So those who hear the Spirit and the Bride's invitation, what do they say? Come. Let the one who hears say, come. So what does that suggest about evangelism? Yeah, it, that's our job, right? Because we have heard, therefore we invite others. Um, just, what's that? We go. Well, we go and we, and we invite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have heard and we've received God's gift, and so we share it with others and invite them too. Consider the sage advice of Proverbs 35 and 6. How is that advice reinforced in uh, 22, 18, and 19? So Proverbs says this, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Now what is verse 18 and 19 saying? Oh back, oh, back to I'm sorry, back to Revelation 22. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, this is John's warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So if it showed up in Proverbs... Does that give us any kind of insight about what it might mean here? Or or at least about the veracity of it? Yeah. And, and what we're getting at here again is that revelation exists in the context of the whole Bible. 
And we've heard these echoes from all different kind of places in Scripture as we've gone through Revelation to, as a way to kind of underscore and to emphasize the, the certainty that we have in what we're reading in Revelation. That, you know, these are not, this isn't just like John on some peyote trip or something, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that he's actually, the imagery, as bizarre as some of it is, actually has roots elsewhere in Scripture. And, and we've seen that time and again, that, that all of these things that John's talking about, there are predecessors and, and things that explain where it came from. Yeah, Lynn. The verses specifically are referencing the book of Revelation, add to or take away. Yeah, yeah. But we've always applied that to the Bible. To the Bible as a whole, yeah. Is that appropriate to do that? Revelation. Is, That's a really good question. Uh -huh. Well, Proverbs says every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Yeah. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Big bang! There's your evidence. So there's the proof. <laughs> yeah. It is appropriate to take Revelation 22 and apply it to the whole book of the Bible. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. Big bang. But specifically, it's referencing the book of Revelation. Right. Yeah, when John says it, he's talking about the book of Revelation. Right. But it is appropriate to go beyond that. Cool. What do the warnings mean to you? <laughs> Let's make it personal now. Wait, say that again. <laughs> do not preach false doctrine. Don't preach false doctrine. Yeah. Be careful where you go with this stuff because it matters. Have I told you all the story about the brownies? I'm sure I have. <laughs> about my friend who makes oh, yeah, the yeah. best brownies ever. This is the, the demonstration of why doctrine matters, right? He makes the best brownies you've ever had. Uses the finest ingredients. Ghirardelli chocolate, the best cream. He goes out to this farm where he gets fresh eggs. I mean, it's the best stuff. He makes the most incredible brownies you have ever had. Now, he has a secret ingredient in them. He also goes out and he adds just a little, just, tiny, just a teeny, tiny, just a little pinch of dog poop in the brownies. Do you want one? <laughs> and everybody goes, no! And the point, and Paul makes this point. I mean, he, Jesus makes the point, actually. He, he's not quite as crass in his illustration, but, but he says, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. A little bit of bad doctrine makes everything bad. You know, so, so like, be real careful about the doctrine that you teach. And doctrine is simply the teaching, right? Be real careful what it is that you teach. Make sure that it's rooted in Scripture, supported by Scripture, consistent with Scripture. It matters. When has a comment then to make about making the Bible politically correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take God as a he pronoun into an it pronoun. Right. To make it politically correct. Right. I mean, what are they doing? My my favorite answer to that was, did you just ignore his preferred pronoun? Because <laughs> he gave it to you in writing. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, it's a reminder that God has given us exactly what we need to know. We don't need to make it more or less than is what than what's there. What we have is sufficient, and it's adequate for what we're what we need, and that is salvation. So, how can we be sure that we're not adding or taking away from the words of the Book of Revelation? I think we have to study a lot. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think we need to be conversant with Scripture. Sometimes I'm worried about what I say about it because I think, man, I really don't know. I'm you know, thinking that I do it, but I need to go back and learn to think. So I've often thought, though, 
that one of the best things that can happen in church or in life generally is to say something about God or about Scripture and to stop and go, is that right? <laughs> because it drives you to get back into Scripture to find the answer to yes. that. Um, and, and some of you know, we, this is many, many years ago, but one of, the, one of the things that kind of nudged me eventually to become a pastor was we had a pastor who was preaching, uh, no other way to put it, some false doctrine. And, and you know, we would walk out of a sermon and go, I, that doesn't sound right. You know, and it drove me back into Scripture to go read and, and, to, and to dig into it and go, is this really what God says? And, and it actually, you know, I, it was painful, but it took us out of that congregation because it was a place where, you know, we, there, was poop in the, there was poop in the brownies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we left. Couldn't make that connection. We're saved by grace, mercy, but now I got here's some stuff you got to do. Yeah, we're yeah. going to hell. Yeah. So I was like, well, which is it? Yeah. And that was always a struggle. Yeah. Well, and that's that's mostly a case of not recognizing the distinction between law and gospel, mm -hmm. and getting the cart before the horse. Yep. That the, the the thinking that I mean, Jesus has plenty to say about good works. It's fruit. It's fruit, it, and it comes after. So. We come into this relationship with Christ. We have this amazing salvation that he has already won for us. And then good works follow. But, but frequently that gets mixed up. And it's usually because law and gospel get confused. And, and it turns into then a thing you've got to do to be saved. Which is also then where decision theology comes from. Oh, therefore you must receive, you must accept Jesus. You must invite him. You must. And the, the problem with that ultimately is if I've got to do anything for my salvation, then I'm always going to be questioning whether or not I actually have it. Yep. Did I do it right? Did I, did I say it correctly? Did I have the right words? Was my heart where it should have been? And, and so all of a sudden that becomes I've got to do something and God's got to do something. And I know God's going to do his part, but I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get my part right. And, and I'm never positive if I did. And, and the beauty of what scripture actually says is that we're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. This isn't your doing. It's nothing you did. It's a gift that God gives to you. And, and part of the reason for that is so that no one can boast. You can't sit there and go, guess what I did? It's what Jesus did. It's what God did. That's where your salvation lies. And then all of a sudden, if it's all about what God did, oh, I can have confidence in that. That I can trust. If you're going to leave it to me, I'm going to hose it up. I guarantee it. I'm, I'm pretty dopey. That's why I saw yeah. Lutheran um, interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. Yep. Well, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the gospel really is good news. Yeah. It really is. Because it's about what Christ has done for you. For you are the two most important words of the Reformation. Thank God for Martin Luther that he figured out how to get for you back into our, our, you know, our language to know that this is what Christ has done for us. Cool. Um, okay, do you, <laughs> do you feel truly ready to say, Amen, come Amen. Lord Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Hurry. Yeah. All right, let me, I'm going to give you quick because um, we got a few minutes. There is one more lesson. We're not going to do it. Um, 
It's mostly about kind of reflections on Revelation. One of the questions on it is, how do you feel your perception of Jesus has changed after seeing him not only as a slain lamb, but as an exalted warrior? Because you get a lot of that imagery as we went through Revelation. And, and for me, it was that kind of gives a whole new facet to his personality. As you read about him in Revelation, you get this, you know, we, we spend so much time with, with gentle Jesus, with Jesus and the kids, with kind Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And in Revelation, you have this picture of this exalted warrior Jesus that's kind of cool. And it kinda, I think it sort of rounds out our perception of who he is. Um, well, so it's, he, wasn't, he wasn't kind of gentle when he was running through the temple. Yeah, right. Turning the over the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you use Revelation as a tool for outreach and evangelism? <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> okay, it might depend on the question. Yeah, what were you saying? Connect it back. Yeah, the trick is, can you connect it back? Because it, Revelation is thorny, isn't it? I mean, we spent a lot of time wrestling with some of it. I, I think, so my take on it was, I think it is, its usefulness primarily is in, in encouraging outreach, okay? It moves us to do it. Uh, it's not the part of scripture you'd lead with, <laughs> right? If you're talking, especially if you're talking to somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is, you don't start with Revelation. Um, it's just too confusing and it's too disturbing in that context, and it would be a really a barrier. You can dip your toes into it maybe a little bit and say, "Well, it it shows you it all yeah. always goes back." Yeah, it'll reinforce. Well, and I think that the because there's enough. Cultural, I don't want to say knowledge, that's probably too strong a word, but there's enough cultural exposure to Revelation that it can be helpful, I think, to be able to kind of take down the fear around it. To be able to say, oh, no, 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 John wrote that as a book of comfort. That's, that's a book, you know, reminding Christians that their faith is rightly placed. Um, and that sort of takes it down. Um, I think it's an excellent tool for Christians who have a well-founded understanding of the gospel to motivate them to more outreach, to more evangelism, because it does kind of paint a picture of that. How do you think about how Revelation portrays the way in which evil operates? Any thoughts on that? It's kind of insightful, isn't it? The world is just yeah. very evident. Yeah, you see it. it it's evident here. So you can draw a straight line from some of the things that we read about in Revelation to some of the things that happen in the world. And that's actually helpful. It likes wealth. It likes power. Yeah, wealth and power. Yeah, yeah. Commerce is a part of it. So, you know, I, I said we, we see evil as crafty and cunning. I found it especially fascinating that John was astonished at the appearance of the woman on the beast in chapter 17, the harlot Babylon. She was powerful, dressed in sumptuous purple clothing, glittering with gold and precious stones, and John was astonished at what he saw. So it's like his eyes were open to what evil can look like. Um, what are the ways that you think its presentation of evil is realistic? It's tricky. Okay, yeah, I think that's good. It's not all, it doesn't always look ugly, does it? It's, it's beautiful and exciting. It can be, yeah, yeah. So it, that's, that's a good way. But I said the flip side of it. I said evil isn't always ugly. 
Sometimes even in its excess, in its excess, it's alluring. Um, and we don't necessarily recognize evil for what it is at first. It can slip past us that way. But evil also collapses on itself in Revelation, and that rings true as well. Um, it's interesting that the harlot is ultimately done in by her own machinations, right? Makes her a double portion from her own cup. That's 18 verse 6. Um, does the message of Revelation scare you, or does it comfort you? Comfort. Ken's comforted. I might have led with that in the first lesson. Coming again. again. What do you think? Everybody cool with that? Once you study it. It's scary, but it's also yeah, fun. yeah. I think I, that's my answer to the question was yes, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it, ultimately, it's comforting to know that your faith is well placed. But for those who don't believe in the end that they're going to come to, it's a scary proposition. It really is, and 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 Revelation doesn't pull any punches when it paints that picture. Okay. I like that our Lord is passive. Yeah, we can have to be our shield, and He. I like recognizing that God is active mm-hmm. and involved. Yeah. How does it affect you to know that the Christian church will endure almost intolerable hardships? Does it make you reassess your position in the church? Definitely. So um, Roberta showed me an article today on NPR that um, if the trend continues the way it's going, the Christian majority will cease to be. That's right. Um, that, that, and, and we've talked about that before. I mean, we are living or headed toward at least a post-Christian world. It used to be that almost everybody you ran into, at least nominally, was a Christian. And that's less and less the case. Um, and you saw some of that as we went through Revelation. Um, you know why? And that's pretty, that's it's been coming. Yeah, and it's, I think, probably accelerating. Talk. Okay. Of why we have this decrease. And, yeah. Um, in our today world, first of all, we're bombarded by uh, movies, television, and all mm-hmm. that, saying there's no God. Yep. And then. Uh, correctness to. We also have this uh, this innate need for wealth, in, not wealth in God's wealth, but money wealth. We start focusing on career, and 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 we're expected to focus on mm-hmm. that. But I wonder now that we're seeing these these uh, scandals of mm-hmm. corruption. Mm-hmm. Is that not a huge, you know, the secrecy of corruption in the churches, in the denominations? Yeah. Is that not just a huge trigger nowadays? To not believe to lead people away from the church to lead people yeah. away because of the Certainly. secrecy and the sure. in it. Sure. Well, yeah, the devil's pretty. Somebody told me when I when I said I was going to go to the seminary, they were like, "Ooh, you need to be careful because you just painted a target on your back." Um, because that's you know that's who Satan wants to go after. I mean, he wants to take down the the leadership in the church, and and you know somebody who's in a leadership role in the church is going to be a target for that kind of stuff. Um, And and I think all of those things that you talked about are true. Um, And they're also not unique to this time in history. Um, There's a whole lot of similarity if you look at what culture looks like now to what it looked like during the Roman Empire. There's a whole lot of stuff that's similar. And so 
in some sense, this is, you know, it's just the cycle of, of a broken, fallen world that we live in. Um, the, the, you know, postmodernism doesn't help the idea that there's no such thing as truth, that all truth is relative, and that you have your truth and I have mine, and, and it, none of that helps the idea. And, and again, nothing new, you know, Pilate himself said, what is truth? Um, so, you know, all of those things, I think, are, are a reflection of the fallenness of humanity. Um, and, and the prayer is that folks see the truth for what it is and actually come to, uh, you know, come to be saved and, and come to a knowledge of the truth, to use a biblical quote. Um, things are going to be different. I mean, I don't look forward to that. We talked about, you know, what do weddings look like in the future? Will there come a time where I'm just not even going to do weddings anymore because if I did, I would be compelled to marry all comers? You know, instead, do we, do we shift so that we just do blessings of unions? And, and people who get married get married through whatever the civil structure is, but then they come to have their union blessed by the church. I mean, they have that in Russia. They have that since yeah. communism. You married by the state. Yeah. Like the state and then blessed by the church. And then if you were a believer, you would go back to the Orthodox Church yeah. and have a ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that kind of thing can happen. So, you know, yeah. you are married by the state. You are not yeah. married by the church. Right. <laughs> right. I act well. I mean, in a, in a wedding, I act as as you an agent of the state. state in the marriage part of it, and yeah. in the blessing part of it. I'm. Yeah. Yeah. You have to state. sign it and send the uh, information to the. I state. have to be licensed by the state in order yeah, to do. Yeah. Um, okay. So, wow, I gotta go. We got worship. <laughs> Just some stuff to think about. I, I I appreciate the journey that we have been on. That was a lot of stuff to take in. Um, but I, I think it was helpful, and I hope that, you know, over the course of that, you have come to see Revelation as the book of comfort that it is. Um, that it's a reminder that your faith is well-placed, that Jesus Christ has and will prevail, um, and that our faith in Christ is exactly the thing that gets us salvation. So, let's close with a quick prayer. Um, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation that you have won for us. We thank you for the faith that you have given us to trust in you and to look to you for all good. We pray that you would keep us strong in our faith, ever draw us closer to you and to your Father and to the Spirit, that we might um, partake of this freedom that we have and share this love with others as well. Um, guide and lead us in all that we do, that we might bring glory to your name and, and please you in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for